people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with the one and only Mr. Eddie Deason. He is the star of many films that I'm sure you've seen. Grease, Midnight Madness, Surf 2, The End of the Trilogy. So many great titles. If you don't recognize the name, you're definitely going to recognize the voice and that personality. He is one of a kind. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I am so curious about the Eddie Deason origin story. Can you tell me a little bit about you growing up and how you got into show business? I was born in 1957. I'm going to be 66 next week, in fact, Mike. I was born in a little town called Cumberland, Maryland. I grew up in a little Jewish family. A father, a mother had an older brother, and I was in trouble for my earliest days. I was always getting into trouble in school. In kindergarten, my earliest days, they put me on the set. They separated me from the other kids because I was always paid in trouble. Finger paints had always put it on my face, pretend I was Al Jolson or whatever, do crazy stuff. And it was always in trouble, always going to the principal's office, always getting detention. I remember that, but I wasn't really a bad kid. I wasn't a mean kid. I didn't hurt the other kids, but I was always getting into trouble. My earliest influence, I left the Three Stooges. Curly was my hero. Supreme hero was Jerry Lewis, of course, from the early days I loved. I saw the first movie with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. I thought they reissued partners, I remember. And I saw them and I was fascinated by them and asked my uncle Harvey. I said, these guys are great. Who are they? And he goes, they're Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And then he goes, he goes, they... In other words, he meant they split. He pulled his hands together and he made this out. He meant they split. And I didn't understand. How could two men split? I didn't get like their Siamese twin. And he was calling me Dean Martin. Jerry split up. He was trying to describe it to me. But Jerry was an early hero. Daffy Duck, Mike, was an early hero of mine. And I loved him. I patted my character after Daffy Duck. If you look at it, I go, listen, you, I'll take you. I'll take care of you. I put my finger in the ear like Daffy Duck, the angry Daffy Duck. So I patted a lot after him. And I was always the class clown. I was always the class clown. So I would wear a water faucet on my head. I had to water faucet I bought it had a suction rubber thing on I stick it in my head and I turn on it would pour water out so look at water would come out of my head stuff like that I know you're a huge Beatles fan when did you first run across them what was your experience hearing the Beatles the first time typical American I remember the Friday they came to America it was Friday February 7 1964 I clearly remember Mike sitting in the car and I remember saying I remember one of them named George Harrison I remember saying that we were talking about this new thing the Beatles I remember watching them on the Ed Sullivan show we went to see Hard Day's Night. My favorite movie that year was uh, July 7th, July 6th, the premiered. We went to see it, and then we saw Help the next year. And I remember this was a little small town in Cumberland. It was like 20,000 or 30,000 people. Like, it's a little town like Mayberry. And there was screaming all through it. You couldn't hear the dialect. You just, it started from the beginning of the movie to the very end, an hour and a half. Girls screaming all the way through, and you just sit there. And you'd watch the Beatles move, and they'd see their lips move, but no words would come out. It was like no movies I've ever seen from today, from that day on. And I just worshipped them. I loved their music. We bought the records. I remember we had eight days a week. We had I Feel Fine. She loves you, of course. I want to hold your hand. And little did I realize, you know, I would be playing a Beatles, but I played myself in I Want to Hold Your Hand, Box the Neck of the First Soul. I played a Beatles fanatic. I, was, I basically played myself. So tell me about your first foray into show business. I mean, was stand-up your way in? There were a lot of different things in that. What was your first thing? There's a lot of different things. The earliest I remember was I was in kindergarten. We danced around the Maypole. At our graduation ceremony, 
my brother Ricky is three years older than me. He was in kindergarten. He graduated. And at graduation, there were these streamers would come down. They had this thing that would spin around. And it was called Dancing Around the Maple. You'd get around like this. It was called Dancing Around the Maple. And I thought, that's really cool. I wouldn't do that. And then three years later, I like kindergarten graduate. I danced around the maple. I was about six years old and we danced around the maple. That was my first time in front of people. I remember my big, my first thing in professional showbiz, there was a comedian, I don't know, called Frankie Fontaine. He used to be on the Jackie Gleason show. He played a drunk. He goes, you can Google him, think Frankie Fontaine. But I was in Atlantic City at the Steel Pier. Frankie Fontaine was a pier. And I was probably about 14. And he called me up on stage. I was like in the second row. And he called me up and another guy. And we were his ventriloquist dummy. It's ironic because, you know, I played a ventriloquist in 1941, Spielbergville. But I played a ventriloquist dummy. That was the first thing I did in showbiz. And he said, I'm just going to talk. All you do is, he whispered to us. He goes, I'm going to pat you on the back. What I do, move your lips. And he, and he said, you'll be Charlie, you'll be Irving. I think I was Charlie, then the guy was Irving. And he would go, hey, Charlie, how are you? And then he'd pat me on the back and he'd da, 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 and I said, so the audience screamed with laughter. He'd go, hey, Irving. And he patted me, and the audience screamed with laughter. Now, after the show I went out, I wandered out. I lost my family. I was I was like in a daze. What's this applause thing? A whole crowd applauded me, the whole room. I went out and these fans crowded around me. What is this? And there were girls there. there were really, I've loved girls since I was six. And there were these girls around me. Saying, this is pretty cool, man. So that kind of put the germ in my head. Show business is pretty cool. That was my first appearance on an actual stage. We have a religion called Purim. I remember early on I played, we had a Purim play. And Haman is the bad guy in Purim. He's like the villain guy. He's the villain that's the bad guy in Purim. And I played Haman's horse. Haman was there and he said, you played Haman's horse. So I got there and I started bucking up and running around the room crazy. So I was crazy from the earliest days. And the kids were all breaking up laughing. You know, this when I was about 10 years old. I played Haman's horse in the temple. That was another thing I did early in showbiz. Stuff like that. Did you just say, okay, I love this applause thing. I'm going to do anything I can to get more of it. Yeah, I think that said the germ of had this applaud. And also, to be honest, I couldn't really do anything else, but I didn't have much talent. Dad had me work. Dad ran a jewelry store in Cumberland called Ray's Jeweler, and I fell asleep in the display window. I was tired one day, and I went in the display window when I took a nap. I fell asleep. And Dad went crazy. That's crazy. I'll think you're dead in there. And my dad had a bad temper, and he fired me, and that was the last time I worked there. And then Dad offered to buy me a Dairy Queen when it was around time to graduate. He said, I'll buy you a Dairy Queen with a Dairy Queen for sure. I said, you can run it. And I didn't want to run a Dairy Queen. So Dad said, tell you what, go to Hollywood, try your luck in showbiz. I'll send you $400 a month. So dad would send me $400 every month. He was a very kind, generous man like that. And that kept me going. In those days, it was ranking 75, 76. I, my rent was like 125 a month. Food was cheap. So that kept me going every month. So what were some of those early gigs like for you? How did you make your start out there? I worked at that comedy store, the famous nightclub, Robin Williams, Rodney Dangerfield, Jimmy Walker, all these guys, Gabe Kaplan, they all worked there. And I remember the first night we went in, we went in, my friend Mike and I, he came to Hollywood with me for the first couple of weeks. And he, I think he stayed for two weeks, then he left me alone. But he was there. We went to the comedy store and we saw Jimmy Walker. And I was terrified. Jimmy Walker was the comedian at that time, 1975. He was, he was J.D. from Good Times. We were in the front row at the comedy store and Jimmy Walker was there. And I was scared to what heck was. I was scared, but he left us alone, luckily. And then little did I know, I, I made my debut at the comedy store January 26, 1976. I got really big laughs in the, the L.A. comedy store. And then I did another performance there. The next week, I got a big laugh. Then Mitzi, who's the owner, said, why don't you try our Westwood Comedy Store? So I did. And I went to the Westwood Comedy Store. And Mike, I tanked. I did with my first time, I'd really bombed in showbiz. I told the jokes and they got hardly any laughs. And I realized I didn't really like doing stand-up. It was hard for me to memorize routines. Even in those days, Mike, I needed index cards. I would read off cue cards. I, I would read my whole routine off cue cards. I'd stand there and read them. What were your gags like back then? They would applaud, okay? they go, da-da-da-da. 
here's our next comic at the master ceremony. Here's the next comic, Eddie D's. And then there's a applause. And it goes, sure, but we respect me in the morning. That was, that was my opening joke. That was supposed to be funny, Mike. But I did that. This is how dated the routine was. They come up with a nude stamp with Richard Nixon's picture on it. But it didn't work. Everybody spit on the wrong side. That was my big joke. So you could see why I tanked, Mike. Stand up with the baby, but there were jokes like that. And I added a little routine. It was like a, my little three or five minute routine. And I did that. Then my next thing was that at the end of 1976, November 13th, 1976, I did the gong show. My TV, I was on that. And it got gonged by Paul Williams. I did my routine. And the crowd liked me, but Paul Williams gonged me. Yeah. Now cut to that. I did the gong show that now cut to 45 years later. I go to an audition or a gig. Paul Williams is there. Always there, Mr. Wiggins. Hi, I'm Eddie Deeds, and I was on the gong show. Do you remember you gonged me? And I'm like, he, he, he apologized. Eddie, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. What do you mean? Just forgive me. I'm so sorry, God. You please give me your forgiveness. He was literally pleading with me. Mr. Wiggins, please, you gonged me with the comedy show. It's no big deal. I said, please don't take it so serious. I didn't mind at all. You gonged me. It was funny. He goes, well, you got to understand. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, he said. We have to apologize to anybody we may have hurt in our lives. So he was very sincere. He was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. And I made sure I really kept, I go, Mr. Williams, you are absolved. You're forgiven. Don't worry. You didn't hurt me at all. Please forgive yourself. And he was forgiven. But he was really giving me a solemn apology. So that was 76. And by 77, you're in Greece. Most people start their careers in low-budget B-movies, turkeys. But I started with a classic. I lucked out. I did, which it's got to be the most popular musical of all time. I think it's maybe one of the five or ten most popular movies of all time. It has to be from the people I talked to. Greece, my favorite film, my favorite film, I watched it a hundred times every Three women I've talked to broke their tapes of Greece. They had tapes of Greece, they played it so many times they broke them. People play, I watched that every day when I was growing up. And it's just the most popular movie ever made. It's got to be up there. Maybe, maybe Star Wars would be up there. I'm not sure the others, but Greece is up there. But yeah, I started out at the top. Now, my part was very small and I'm a bit player. But just to be a part of that, I always say it's like the guys in Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind, the big classic. And there's the battlefield scene. All these corpses, there's that big battlefield scene after the war. They show all these corpses dead on the field. Every one of those corpses were actors. Those were guys who were actors. And they probably bragged the rest of their life to go, I'm in Gone with the Wind with Clark Gable. I was in Gone with the Wind. That was their big thing. So I'm kind of like that in Greece. I played this little bit part, but it's this hugely classic movie. Yeah, I can't believe the legs on this and just that it's, been with us i think it's having its 45th anniversary this year and it's just amazing yeah and it's still so fresh stevie and i yeah stevie and i watched it mike like about two weeks ago and it's still so fresh the songs are so wonderful it's the ultimate feel-good film and i watched it and i felt really good if it's a feel-good movie if you're down in the dumps if you're depressed try watching grief i don't think it can hurt i think it'll make you feel a little bit happier it just brings it's such, such a joyous movie so how did you get cast as Richard Ringo Klaus, and I want to hold your hand. Um, I, with some kind of a call, I forget. Steven, I don't remember the audience, but Bob Zemeckis was doing his first film. It was the first film Steven Spielberg ever produced. But I remember seeing Steven. Now, I saw him on the set a lot, but yeah, the casting was Sally Dennison was a casting director. Dozzy Stokes was there. Bob Zemeckis was there. And they assisted Bob Gale. They co-wrote it. That was the film Mike I auditioned for the most times. I had to audition nine times for that movie. And they later told me, Bob Gale was laughing so hard at me, he said he was actually crying. He laughed so hard. I guess I, some people you get along with and hit their buttons. And I was that way with Bob Zemeckis. Bob Zemeckis is still to this day the best director I've ever worked with. He's fantastic. He's wonderful. And we did it. And yeah, we just a joyous shoot. It was great. And we did a promotional tour in New York. And they put us up in the Plaza Hotel, guess what, in the Beatles suite. We got to live in the Beatles suite and got to stay there. Steven Spielberg came with us. He was there. Steven took us out to lunch. We're eating at 
30s or the stage deli or something, but we were, Stephen was there, I remember he was at the head of the table, and he treated us all lunch, it was really cool. Now, we were making the movie, Stephen and I would kibitz a lot, we talked a lot and chat on the set, he was just a great guy, and I remember I made up the one line. Now, this is a mild joke now, but I think I was the first one to use, because I think this joke's been recycled and recycled in different ways, but there's the one line the policeman breaks in the room where I have the laugh, and he goes, now I got you little shit, and I go, who are you calling little? And I said that to Stephen, I go, I'm just like that. Stephen broke up loud. He goes, look, Eddie's going to use this joke, and I use that. Now, there's been different variations on that joke where they get upset at the wrong part. Eddie, you little bastard. Who are you calling little? But I think I'm the first one to use that joke, and it's been reset. Stephen liked that joke. He laughed. And I was good friends with Stephen on, you know, we were just talking. He would just hang on to the set with us. Him and Bob were like best friends, and he was kind of like Bob's mentor. And Bob was just a fabulous director, and he was a joy to work with. Wendy Jo Berber was still the best comedy partner I've ever had. She was like Lou Costello. She was like Lou Costello to my Bud Abbott. She was so wonderful. She left way too soon. That role seems custom made for you because you were such a Beatles fan from the get-go. I know. Is it, is it the light funny? It's almost, you're right. Like they'd written that role for me. Nothing could have been more perfect. And I got that. You know what, Mike? I swear to God, to this day, that's the best role I ever played. That's the best thing I ever did. That's the closest I ever got to my comedy what i wanted to do it a film great direction great dialogue and just getting across the character i wanted yeah yeah and it's such a great movie and it still holds up you talked about the longevity of greece the longevity of i want to hold your hand i swear it just gets better every single year i'll tell you a great story mike all mccartney was interviewed by my old friend joe pope joe did a magazine called strawberry field forever with a beatles magazine now sadly joe died of AIDS later on but he died years ago but he was interviewed with paul mccartney and he told me, he'd asked Paul McCartney, you ever see a movie called I Want to Hold Your Hand? And Paul McCartney, me, he did an impression. Paul McCartney goes, and the answer come back. And the answer come back. Paul McCartney friggin' did me. He imitated me. So that's one of the greatest compliments in my life. But Paul did see it. George saw it. George said it was a good historical bill. Now, Ringo, I've heard two stories. Ringo, I heard, didn't like it. He said, he, I can't believe Steven Spielberg got himself involved with it, this bill. He said something derogatory. But I also heard a story that they screened it for Paul and Ringo both, and they both liked it. So I don't know about Ringo. And John, I never found it. John could have seen it. He wasn't doing much. He was retired at those years. So I'm hoping he saw it in New York, but I never heard whether John saw it or not. But that was like one of the first Beatles films. Remember, Beatles films are pretty frequent now. They're like almost a new one every year. But that was one of the first Beatles films. But I love the way that he shot the Beatles, that whole thing with the monitor and the camera and then having the body doubles out of focus in the background. That was so clever. Yes. Bob the Beckett was ahead of his son. And Mike, when we were doing Polar Express, I was talking to Tom Hanks and I said, did you ever see one of over here? We were talking about it for something. And he said, I love the way he did those scenes with the Beatles. He said, I really love that. You know, that thing would be, did the Beatles, but they think that they didn't see their fate. He liked that. And just to get back to a minute to Greece, another thing Tom said, he said, I love the, he was like a little punk, a little kid. We'll talk about him later when we get into Polar Express. But he goes, I love the end of Greece, but they fly off and they're all waving. He's like a little kid talking about, he liked the last scene I put in. You see Greece? He said, I love that last scene where Danny and Sandy go flying up in the car into the sky. <laughs> and you tell me, what was it like working with Murray Hamilton on 1941? Murray was a wonderful, nice man. He was a very kind man. At that time, I had to see Jaws. Now, later I found it's one of my favorite movies, but I didn't see it. We would have great talks up there, Mike. Oh, yeah. And he had us up, wake it up, and we were like 30 or 40 feet up in the air. So the huge Ferris wheel. And Murray and I would chat. And every day we'd have talks. He'd talk about life and religion and politics and everything. But I didn't talk about Jaws. I was so ignorant. I was, I was like 20 and I hadn't seen Jaws. Now, it's a movie everybody's seen, but I didn't see it at that time. 
but he was a wonderful guy. He was a chronic smoker, and he would come down. Stephen had an oxygen tank for him, and periodically Stephen would let us down, and he would take an oxygen tank. He, could, he literally couldn't breathe up there. He would have trouble grasping for breath up there on that Ferris wheel. Yeah. Anyway, I'll tell you the great story. We were on the Ferris wheel night, and Stephen was whipping us around. the scene where the Ferris wheel rolls off the pier. And Stephen was whipping us around really fast, whipping us around that Ferris wheel. And I started to get nauseous. I got motion sickness. And I go down to Stephen. I'm sick. He goes, look, tell you what. Have my secretary take you to my dressing room. Lay down. So his secretary took me to the dressing room. He said, lay down at Stephen's cot. I crawled over on my hands and knees into the cot and I lay down. Then I got sick again. I feel really nauseous. I crawled to the toilet in my hands and knees and I threw up. And I realized, oh my God, the significance. I just threw up in Steven Spielberg's toilet. And to this day, it's one of the highlights of my career. I talked about how the role of Ringo seemed custom made for you, but did I read that Midnight Madness, that role of Wesley, was actually written just for you? That's interesting. If it was, I wasn't sure that or I forgot. Maybe it was because it was the perfect role for me. Maybe it was. I don't know. That was the only time I worked with two directors. Michael Nankin and David Wester were co-directors. I don't know if they ever did anything else after that movie, but that was my unhappy issue. But it was a funny film. I think it's one of my better films. Yeah, there was, uh, I won't get into names, but there were a couple actors and a couple people in the crew that weren't so nice. They were, they were pretty mean people and I just didn't like it. Now, the other side of the coin, it was Michael J. Fox's first film that he was a delight. Michael and I would have lunch together and talk about the Twilight Zone every day. And we go, I had a Super Bowl, I bring in a big Super Bowl. And we go to this wall at Disney Studio, it's a brick wall, and we play handball together. He was a delight. Maggie Rothwell from The Simpsons with my girlfriend, and she was wonderful. I loved her. And that was Pee Wee Herman's film. And I always thought Pee Wee kind of patterned his character off me. Pee Wee Herman's suit, if you look at it, it's my exact suit from Greece. And he did his first film with me. So I always tell you, I think Pee Wee gave, he's a nice guy. He gave me credit. I think he did say Eddie Deason was part of the influence of the Pee Wee Herman character. So he was a great guy. Yeah, that was a fun film. There were a lot of fun times at. Did you have to shoot that whole thing at night? Pretty much. It was, yeah, more night shoots than I ever remember. We, I remember we shot the Bonaventure Hotel in LA, all over LA, different locations. But yeah, that was like pretty much night shoots all the way. I think they were going to call it the great all-nighter, in fact. It was like an all-night shoot. But they changed it to Midnight Madness. I don't know. And I don't think it did that good at the box office. Maybe they should have called it The Great All Night, or maybe it would have done better. I seem to remember that was originally supposed to be a, a Disney film, and they separated from it, because I think Ron Miller actually produced it. Exactly. It was, it, yeah, it was the middle ground, Mike. It was too risque to be a Disney film, and it wasn't raunchy enough to be PG, so it didn't catch a crowd. of either. It didn't get the Disney fans. It didn't get the Animal House crowd. It was like in the middle there. But there's a couple risque lines. I have Maggie Roswell on my moped at the end. Boy, it's like having one of these mean machines between your legs. And that was, for Disney, that's a fairly risque line. That's a pretty raunchy line. We had little moments like that in the movie. The thing that gets me about Midnight Madness is that with every single one of those groups of contestants, like you get to know some of the people that are in the groups, especially like Stephen First group, you get to really know them. The David Naughton's group, you get to know them. But with your group, it's basically you and three other guys that just look like you and do everything that you do. <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Maybe right. Yeah. I love David Naughton. He was great to work with. And uh, yeah, I love Steven first. He was like, he was a joy to work with. I love Steven. He left us too soon. Steven's such a cool guy. He'll be immortal from Animal House always. Were there ever directors that told you, hey, Eddie, you need to take it back? Because I think the, the more outrageous you are and the more like spastic you are, better the role is for you. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. Mike. But some will say, you know what I get? The most is they'll say, slow down, because I talk very fast. Go, Listen, I went to the store, and they'll say, slow down again. And then when I try to sit down, that's a salary, because I naturally do talk fast. That's just the way I talk. But 
they, I don't remember particularly all the films I've done and all the TV work. I don't remember them saying Brandon Dowd. Because I think when they hire me, they know my shtick. I'm very physical. I love doing physical comedy. They know my shtick. The direction I get the most is slow down, they'll say. And I will try it down. I'll go, listen, you, I'll take care of you. And I'll slow down. Listen, you, I'll take care of you. And it doesn't sound like me if I talk real slow. I just, I, I don't know if it, people always question I get asked, they go, are you from New York? Because I, I get New Yorkers talk fast. I, I just avoid talk fast. I love that back and forth between you and Maury Chaikin and War Games, where he's like trying to put his foot on you a little bit and you're just no regard. I love it. He was a great guy. Great guy. I came on the set. By the way, Maury's another. By the way, be reminded, this is the sad part of this wonderful podcast. All these people that have left us too soon, but Maury's another one who left us too soon. He was a great comedy guy. But anyway, we were on the set and I was a little bit arrogant. I was working a lot this time and I came on. Maury and I were talking before we did our thing. I go, yeah, it's just another job. And Maury goes, he put me in my place. It's important to me. He said something like that, but he really put me in my place. He got my ethics there. And I go, you know what? You're right. Be professional. And then Maury came up with a great line. He goes, look, in this scene, I'm going to call you Mr. Potato Head. And I broke up. He goes, that's great. Dude. He made that. It wasn't up in the script. The script was without that. And that made the scene. Mr. Potato Head. And to this day, Mike, people will say, hey, Mr. Potato Head. And they go, were you Mr. Potato Head? I'll get rest of that. People will call me that. That, that made the scene. He was great. And with Matthew Roberts' first film, I drove, I worked one day on War Games. Matthew and I were there and we drove in. I was in the, I got picked up first. I was in the front seat. Then we picked up Matthew and his family. He was in the back seat. And I remember Matthew and I were talking and he talked about his father, James Broderick, who had just recently passed away. And I, I looked back and he had tears in his eyes. It was so sweet. But Mike, he was like a little kid, Matthew. He was, what was he, like 17 or 18 when we did it? But he had tears in his eyes, like a little kid about his father, believing his father. And I'll never forget that. And the cool thing about War Games is, Ronald Reagan screened the film in the White House. I don't know if you know this story, but he screened the film in the White House. This is 100% true. And he literally changed the national security system of the United States because of that movie. He saw the film and he thought that somebody, I guess Russia at that time was our big enemy. He thought maybe Russia could tap into our security system and attack us or something. But he changed our security system because of war games. So it has a little place in history. My director was Marty Brest, who later, Marty Brest was fired after he did. He, Marty Brest directed 12 different scenes in it. Mine might have been last, but mine was one of the 12. And then they fired Marty Brett. The figure didn't like his Bailey. And they hired John Badham. But John Badham watched the scene that mine was the only one he kept. He liked my scene. He said, leave that in the movie. So mine is the only one in the war game that's not directed by John Badham. It's directed by Marty Brett. Marty Brett did Beverly Hills Cop the next year. So he made a name for himself. So I'm glad he did good. Because he was a really nice director. He's directed so many great things. With the role of Menlo Schwarzer in Surf 2, the end of the trilogy, would you consider that your biggest role? Is that the movie that you have the most screen time? I had two, Mike. I had two, I think I had top billing. Maybe three, but I, I was top billed in that one, Surf 2, and I was top billed in one called Mob Boss. We'll talk about that later with Morgan Fairchild. And I think I was from Beverly Hills Vamp. I might have been top billed, but maybe it wasn't me. Maybe the other lady was billed first. But that was, yeah, for a screen time, that would be right up there. It would be either that or Mob Boss, I'd say, that I got the most screen time. But I'm usually an ensemble player. Either a bit player, I'll do a cameo, or an ensemble player. But yeah, that one I got, I started in that one and it was fun. It was great shoot. We filmed a lot at the beach. Mike, has Randall Bagot directed after that? Did he do stuff after that? I don't think he did. I remember he did get along with Ron Polio. Remember Ron Polio, who was Horshack on Welcome Back Cotter? Damn it, they didn't get along though. They were like oil and water and they were get into it on the set. For some reason, they didn't hit it off. I remember, but Linda was a two-way worker. I loved Ron. We were lifelong friends. And again, he's another of my friends who died too young. He, he, did, he died way too young. He was a big time smoker. I think I had a cancer, but he was just a really good friend. I loved him so much. Yeah, great guy. 
Yeah. Inspector Underwear. Inspector Underwear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lyle Wagner was a wonderful guy, too. He just was a great guy. I've done signing shows with them. He's one of the nicest guys. We sat together on a plane. I remember coming back from a signing show. He told me all these stories. He was up for Batman. He was against Adam West. They were the last two for Batman. And he was, it was, but he said he just missed immortality. Adam West got it. I mostly remember him from the Carol Burnett show. Yes, of course. That's his legacy. You and Linda Carriage, I mean, I think she's in every single scene that you're in that film. Yeah. She was my girlfriend and she was just great to work with. I love working with her. She was a knockout. She was drop dead gorgeous. I love, again, totally off the rails. You with that umbrella hat that you're wearing. Just so many great set pieces in that movie. I'm so glad that it's now getting a little bit more recognition than it was for so many years. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's one of my better films. I like it too. Yeah. I was fond of that. That's one of my better B-movies. Carol Wayne was there. I remember. I think that might have been Carol's last film. She was a little out of it at that time. He kept she, I think she was on some kind of medicine or some bad stuff. Believe me, I had my own experience with psych drugs. They're horrible, but we won't go on that tangent. But Carol was on some kind of meds or something. Mine was a little bit addled. And she goes, E.T. goes home. She kept saying that over and over when we were on the beach, I remember. But what the devil? No, I realized she was probably on some kind of that drug or something. But she was really nice. I loved her. And I loved Ruth Buddy. She was great to work with. Eric Stoltz from Mask, remember? Eric was in there. Eric and I used to play poker together. We get together. Eric, Jeffrey, the other guy, Jeffrey Scott, me, them. I don't think Tom Villard played, but we but we would play poker together all the time. We'd order pizza. Poor Tom Villard. That's another one that went way too young as well. Mike, I was thinking of, but I didn't want to depress your listeners. It's that both. I've never done a podcast where I've been so reminded of the people that have died that I work with. I'm so sad. I'm sorry to be your reminder. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't go back into the we didn't touch on greed, Steve. But my, Stevie and I were talking about greed and how it, it had a curse on it. I don't know. Is that just mind movies or is that just life? I think that's just life. An inordinate amount of people who passed away. I don't know. These were like every one of them that passed away. They were all cool people. I don't really. It would be a better word if the people you really didn't like, the mean people would pass away. Then you wouldn't care. But every one of these people we talked about that died were cool. They were my friend. Uh, he, yeah, I think he had a small part in Reese too as well. Who was this? Tom Villard. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, like to the point where I think his name was like Greaser Boy. So like very small part. Yeah, it's like in Greek, this is trivia, but all the dancers had names. It's not talked about in the movie, but they were named Moose and Sauce and Sailor Boy. But every one of them were assigned a name. I, But they, it was not needed, but they did. I guess it got him more in character or something. It, the scene with you in Million Dollar Mystery with the Murphy bed, that is a classic. I love that. I did that scene, Mike. It was twice as long or three times as long. I did really some great Charlie Chaplin stuff. I did a lot of gags on that, where the bed goes up and bucks like a Bronco, and I sit on it bucks like a Bronco, and I flip over. I did a lot of it, and Fleischer cut it way down. But apparently, it still looked good. I don't, I've never seen that film. I think I was too. I was really not happy with that movie filming it. I was really unhappy because of Richard Fleischer, the only director I didn't like. How was it working with Tim Conway on the dwarf stuff? Well, God, I loved him. He's a light bump friend, the nicest guy in the world. I love them. Just a pleasure. He broke up at everything. He's the sweetest guy in the world. And I worked with his son, Tim Conway Jr. We did Teenage Exorcist. I think he's in that with me. But uh, Tim was just a joy. We would talk. He was a delight. I told him he was my hero on the Carol Burnett. So when I was a kid, he, I loved McHale's Navy. He was always one of my heroes. He was just so nice, so sweet. And I talked to Tim Jr. about it. He said it played against me. He said Tim was so nice father. He said, my dad is so nice that people will take advantage of him. They'll say something. 
hey, can you loan me a thousand dollars? And Tim had such a good heart, he'd give him a thousand bucks or whatever. But he said Tim was so nice, people would take advantage of him. And I could see that. He just was inordinately kind, inordinately sweet. Do you work with Fred Olin Ray quite a few times? Can you tell me a little bit about your working relationship with him? I love him. The best comedy director I've ever worked with. I love him. He's a wonderful, great guy. And we did Mob Boss with Morgan Fairchild. My great one and now my great story of that is I get to make out with Morgan Fairchild. We have a scene in the movie, okay, the classic gag where the nerdy guy makes out with a beautiful girl and then the camera has the back with that and then he turns around and his glasses are steamed up, they're fogged up. So we're going to do that scene with me and Morgan and we're ready and Morgan goes, hey, Annie, do you want to rehearse? So I did a double take. I, look, I did my Oliver Hardy look at the camera. Thinking, Morgan Fairchild asked me if I want to make out with her, basically. She said, do you want to rehearse kissing? So I get to make out with Morgan Fairchild. So we did take... He put my head to the left, to the right, straight on. And I get to make out with Morgan Fairchild. And let me tell you, she's a great kisser. She is the best kisser, Mike. I'll tell you the other story. She was the sweetest, nicest girl. All the cats, we'd all have lunch together every day. It was lunchtime, and we'd all have a catered lunch at a table. And Morgan, she was like a big star. She would have lunch alone in her dressing room. And she was so sweet. I think part of what she was just shy. She's a very sweet. She just, I can't tell you what a beautiful person she was. But anyway, one day she said, Eddie, do you want to have lunch with me? Being a guy, it's good for you. Oh my God, Morgan Fairchild, let's have an affair with me. I'm going to go to bed with Morgan Fairchild. But I went in, I knocked on the door. I remember clearly, I was nervous. But it's like, this is like summer of 42. I'm going out with an older woman. So I knocked on the door. She called me in. She just wanted to have lunch with somebody. We had our lunch there and we just walked. We just had lunch and we talked together for an hour, Mike. And she told me all about her life growing up. I think she grew up in Texas. But she said, she, Warren Beatty was off coming on to her when she was like 15. He said, you could see her in Bonnie and Clyde. She's in, she's like an extra. She's in the back seat. One of the cars watched Bonnie and Clyde. The car goes, you could see her head in that. She told me all these little stories about her life. And it was the nicest lunch I ever had. She was just a delight. She was a doll. I love her. I can't even imagine some of the, you're talking about how you're chatting with Dom Hanks and Michael J. Fox. Just the amount of people that you've met over the years is just wild. Yeah. It's a blessed life, Mike. I've had such a blessed life. And yeah, the people I've met have been incredible. I write about him pretty much on my Facebook page. Every time one of their birthdays comes up, I'll tell a story about him. I wrote about Morgan on February 3rd, and I wrote about John Travolta, the stuff that happened with him on his birthday, February 18th. I have a couple of John Travolta stories, but I pretty much, there's such cool people. There's almost always a story there. They're not bland people. You meet somebody at a Walmart and they give you your bag and you go, it's not like that. These are like magical people. These are great artists and they bring magic into the world. And that's why I have these great stories about it. Tom Hanks, he just created magic around. John Travolta, he just creates magic wherever he goes. And that's the way these guys are. They're beautiful artists. They're very special people. It's got to be tough for you to even choose what are some of your favorite things that you've done over the years, just because you've done so many things and have made all these memories. Yeah. The best film, might say, not my part in it, but the best film would be Grease. I'd say that has to be my lasting film. That's in, I wrote about it today, in fact, Mike. It's, in the, it's registered in the Library of Congress. It's preserved in the Library of Congress. That's why I was really proud of that. But that's the best film. Polar Express I'm proud of because working with Tom Hanks, he's my favorite star in the world. He's my all-time favorite actor. So working with him was, was a dream. And also, I'm Jewish, but Christmas has always been my favorite holiday. And I always want to do a Christmas film. It's always one of my, on my bucket list. So I got to do a Christmas film. And Bob Zemeckis is my favorite director of all time. So I got to work with Bob. So that was special to me. So that was just, those two were my book. And Grease was my first. And Polar Express was like the last movie I did, even though it was 19 years ago. Hopefully, Stevie and I are trying to get me back. Hopefully, when we go back to L.A., maybe I'll get some more film roles. I hope. We'll see. I'm going to be 66 next week. I'm not spring chicken anymore. When it came to Polar Express, did you just do voice? Did they do any of that motion capture stuff for you? 
He did motion capture with something. Here's what it did, Mike. We come in every day, okay? We put on skin diver suits. It was the four of us. It was Tom Hanks, me, Nona Gay, and she's the beautiful, the pretty girl, the African-American girl. She's Marvin Gaye's daughter. And it was Peter Scalore, who was with Tom and Bosom Buddy. We'd all get in skin diving suits. They would glue a rubber skin diving cap to our head. Then, Mike, they would get a marker, okay? They'd mark 152 dots on our face. Then they had these little dots. I don't know if they were electronic dots. And they would put each dot on each spot on our face. I swear to God, that's how they did it. The makeup thing was very long, was a long process. And that's how we were made up every day. And we'd get in there and we would do our scene. We'd go, hey, Stan, I want all those presents. And Tom would talk. The four of us were pretty much together. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. The four of us were together a lot in the movie. And we did our scene. Then they had four kids. They, a young Tom, a young me, a young Peter, a young Nona. They were little children. One was dressed like Tom in blue, and I was, mine was dressed in blue, Tom was dressed in yellow or whatever. And they did the same scene. They go, hey, Santa, I want all this. Stuff. And they somehow would do the same motion. And Bob Zemeckis, however they did the technology, they would morph us together. So you see the kids in the movie are making the move, movie, but that was actually us doing it. Like you see, what you see when I fall down in the train, I fell down and my glasses fell off. But somehow that was the kid did the same scene. It's morphed into a kid's body. It's some kind of process like that. Motion capture was called. That was the first film to use motion capture. Bob was always ahead of his time. It's interesting to go back to, I want to hold your hand and how he's using the Beatles, but then all those years later, he's integrating Tom with all the characters in Forrest Gump. And then it's like, that was right there on the cutting edge too. He was pre a lot of these directors. You're right. He was pre then the other stuff he got would use in later films. Right. He thought of this stuff first. Absolutely. He was an innovator. He was an original. He still is. He's original. I love Bob. Everything he does. I thought, have to see Pinocchio. I was in the hospital. I didn't get to see Pinocchio yet, but that's why I do want to say Bob is in it and Bob directed it, so it's got to be great. You and Peter Scolari had worked together before. I don't know if you shared any scenes. It's been a while since I've seen the Rosebud Beach Hotel. Oh my God, yeah. That's one I forgot about. Like, yeah, Peter is a delight. He's like, I said, okay, sorry, last time he died to you. He sadly died a couple of years ago. Yeah, God, what a sweet guy. He was the greatest guy. Yeah, Rosebud Beach Hotel, he was great. I love working with Peter. He was a doll, just the nicest guy you could ever imagine. Who was in that one? I'm trying to remember, besides Peter. That was uh, Colin Camp, Christopher Lee, who I think was in a few movies that you were in. Christopher Lee, that's it. That's people of Christopher Lee. I loved him. He's the greatest guy. I worked with him in 1941, that one and one other. He was the most wonderful gentleman. All I said, blah, blah, blah. he was great. And he was just a warm, friendly guy with a great sense of humor. He belied Vincent Price. We met me and my ex-wife met Vincent Price. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But we critically worked with him. He belied this. We played this sinister horror character in these horror movies, a lot of these gothic films. But he was a regular guy who had a great sense of humor. Anyway, I'll digress one minute. This is, I think it was like the 80s. I, I was married for two years in the 80s. So yeah, it had to be somewhere between 1984 and 1986. <clears throat> my ex-wife Linda and I were at a fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills. We were just, we went out. That was the best part of our meals. We go to fancy meals. That was the best part. Linda and I love to eat, so we ate a lot of good meals together. So it was a happy marriage in that way. And we had some good time together. Anyway, we're at this restaurant. We realized we're the booth. We realized in the adjacent booth, Vincent Price is there. Oh my God. So you're trying to keep cool and eat, but I realized Vincent Price is right behind me. So we finished our meal. We turn around and go, Hi, Mr. Price. Can I get your autograph? No, whatever. And he goes, Oh, yeah. That ain't Vincent Price. Vincent, I go, Mr. Price, you are so great. And he goes, you're in the movie. He goes, but he said that Vincent Price was good. I remember exactly. He goes, oh, you're good too. That's what he said. He goes, oh, you're good too. And I have any point of me. He was the nicest guy. 
And he did, so that made our day. Linda and I went out of there after having met Vincent Price. Another great one. Linda and I are walking down Hollywood Boulevard one day. This is, again, between 84 and 86. There's this big limousine parked by Fredericks of Hollywood. So you figure, obviously, this guy's going in to get his wife or his girlfriend to dress in some kind of sexy negligee or some sexy lingerie. So we're there. The guy comes up. He goes, do you know who's in that car? Steve Wonder. There's Steve Wonder. That's like a porno star. I've never heard of Steve Wonder. It's got to be part of We look in the car. Stevie Wonder's in there. Now, first of all, think about it. Who would be the least celebrity you'd imagine to go to Frederick's Hollywood? Stevie Wonder, because he can't see the group. What would it, what help with Stevie Wonder? Why would he want to go to dress up in nylons and garter belt? But it was Stevie Wonder's car. The door was open. Now, obviously, the girl was there in picking her clothes out for whatever reason. That's a true story. Now, we look in. I'm going to wonder, you Stevie Wonder? Yeah, he invites us in, Mike. He invited Linda and I. And so Linda and I are sitting in a limousine backseat with Stevie Wonder there. I swear to God, we're talking to him and all. So I finished. And what I remember most about him, he was the nicest guy in the world. And what I remember, Mike, the most is his shake, his handshake. We shook hands at the end, and it was the best handshake I ever got. It was that perfect handshake. The only one, I shook hands with President Clinton once, and those were two best. I shook hands with a lot of the greats, but President Clinton and Stevie Wonder had the two perfect male hands. They were too hard, not too soft, not John Wayne, too tough, he breaks hands, not effeminate, but just a perfect handshake, a perfect grip. And we bid him goodbye, and we left, but we met Stevie Wonder. I love that you're still a fan, even though you've been in all of these things, that you still are like a fanboy around certain people. I'm very starstruck. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, like I grew up watching your movies and you would just show up here and there and it's just, oh gosh, it's Eddie Dees and I'm so excited and you know, just so great to see you. And now you have like all of these other generations that just know you mostly as your voice and just like showing up on Dexter's Laboratory or SpongeBob and just all of these different things. You did voice work for so many years it's wild yeah after polar express and even before polar express those years were a little felt the 80s i worked a lot in the late 70s and the 80s was my heyday where i was i was churning them out a lot of b movies i was churning them out probably like 20 films i did then i got into which i was war games i had trouble with my line this is the genesis of it mike war games i was having a lot of trouble i had only the one c but i had to say the word data encryption algorithm and i kept screwing up i go data endocrine algorithm cut data endocrine algorithm cut data endocrine algorithm and i Screwed up and screwed up. So finally they stopped. So Marty takes me by and he goes, Eddie, let's take a little walk. He crooks his finger at me and beckons me over. He put his arm around my shoulder. He goes, let's take a walk. So we go outside. He goes, look, you're costing the studio money. He goes, we're going to get you idiot cards. He goes, idiot cards, pronouncing idiot like I'm an idiot. But he was a nice guy. But he said, we're going to get you idiot cards. So anyway, he had these cue cards designed for me. And I read the scene I got in one take. I go, we got the new dating encryption algorithm. Bang, one take. I go, this is great. You get read off a card. Anybody can do that. So I realized that I think that was my genesis of falling in love with with voiceover because voiceover you just read your part you don't have to memorize anything you read your roll off a piece of paper that's all but it, by going back my as early as the Gong Show I did need index cards so even then I was having trouble with my memory I remember I did my whole routine off index cards so even from the earliest point in my career I liked using cue cards and then Polar Express I used cue cards all the way through it Bomb known in them didn't use them but I read my full roll they had a cue card roll having these big cards like Johnny Carson. I had these cards like Bob Hope's cue cards, and I read off them. Can you tell me a little bit about the short film that you were in, I Love You, Eddie Diesel? Yeah, that was done by a talented girl, Sherry. What was her name? Sherry, I don't remember the last name. But she is a very sweet, talented girl. She's wonderful, and I hope she achieves all her goals. That film was good for her. It didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily get to explain my stuff so much, but it was a vanity piece for me because there was my name in a film. That was cool. And she was wonderful to work with, and she's a great director. So I think she has a great future. She's so much younger than me. 
she has a great future ahead. But I think I only worked a day on that, if I remember. Maybe I worked two or three. But she was fun to work with. And yeah, she was just really nice. She's a really nice person. I think she's on my Facebook list. I love Sherry. You have been working so much for so many years. How did the pandemic affect you? Did you have to stop doing what you're doing? Because there's been a period of time since, I think, like 2016. I know you did one called, what, Biju Mike? But otherwise, you've stopped working for a little while. Yeah. Here's what happened. Like, you can leave this in your show or not. I'll leave it up to your discretion. You seem like a nice guy, so use your discretion. I got very sick. I had a heart trouble in the late, before 2020. There's a picture on my old Facebook page. In fact, I was looking at I'm hugging the store, and I remember even before I had my operation, I didn't know what I was getting these vertigo spells. I didn't know. Now, I was born with a heart murmur. And one of the valves had come loose, it was leaking blood into my brain. So I, I would get these, or I, I, and I find, you know, what's going on? And I literally think, am I dying? It was horrible. It was a horrible period of my life. And I finally got the operation at the beginning of 2020. I had open heart surgery. Then the worst thing happened. Like they put me on this regimen of pills, like about 20 pills. And I had in my whole adult life drug free. I'm like a Christian scientist, no drugs at all, no meds. I didn't even take aspirin, but they put me on these 20 meds and I started acting really crazy. That's when I started acting really weird. And then I had a stroke after that and I got in trouble in my hometown. I literally, I was help funny in retrospect, but it's true. I was in a Japanese restaurant and the police were, they were trying to throw me out. I'd swear to God. And I, the police were there. They told me to leave and I threw plates at them. I threw plates at the cops and they would chase me around the restaurant. And I go, felt that kind of kidnapped me. Literally, it sounds like a movie. And my friend in the hospital, he goes, if they still have that surveillance film, it's got to be one of the best restaurant surveillance films of all time. It's got to be a classic. But I literally say throughout, now the bad part, Mike, is I w- that was assault, that second degree assault. When I was up for 10 years in prison, I had a good public defender and she got me off. She got me off the hook. So now I'm serving 18 months by the supervised probation. I'm serving with Stevie and his wife. Steve Joyner is the nicest guy in the world. He's my manager. And he was so kind. He took me in. Stevie's a great guy. We have fun every day. We go out to eat every day. We talk. We chat. I let him do his stuff. He's a manager of a lot of people. He's an important manager. And I let him do his stuff. But we do a lot of things together every day. So he's responsible for me being here. He's getting me podcasts. He's booking me for some signing shows. And we ultimately do want to go back to Hollywood so I can get back in the movies or at least try. You know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life out here. I'm happy to be. The South Carolina people are so nice. They're so wonderful. But I do want to go back to L.A. as my home. I just wish you were closer to Detroit because I'd love to have you on one of my pub trivia teams because I know you're a huge trivia guy as well. I think Stevie might be a trivia expert too. We do good at the team. I guess everybody has their subject. Mine is like the Beatles. I'm, a, I'm an expert at old-time baseball. I, I know certain things. I'm not, I'm not a, around. Like I know nothing about geography, nothing like that. I don't know where the Ukraine is or some stuff like that. Or I don't know. I know you know where Florida is, California. I don't know where all 50 states are. I'm very ignorant in some things. You know what Mark Twain said? We're, we are all ignorant, only in different areas. It's such a profound quote, and it's true. Nobody knows everything. We're just, we all just all know our field. Everybody's good. There's an old line, I'm paraphrasing, every dog is good in front of his own house, and every dog is tough in front of their own house. When you've got your own stuff, you're a real expert, but when you're taken out of your field, you can look like an idiot. I am so excited for you to get back out there. I want the world to have more Eddie Diza because I just always enjoy everything that you're in. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. You're very kind. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work and for you to make any sort of feature announcements? Okay. I'm on Facebook every day. You please look at my Facebook post. I'm with by a 5,000 friends at the limit, but you can always look at my Facebook page. Stevie's got me on Cameo videos. We're on a thing called Cameo. You can order a Cameo video. They cost $30. And I will say... 
pie or whatever you want me to say. I'm basically, I'm like a whore. I'll say whatever they, I'll say happy birthday, happy bar mitzvah, have a great wedding. We've got this one real long thing, this real, real long, long dialogue. People have me say all kinds of things or whatever, or pep talks I love. Some people say, well, you just give us a pep talk and I'm good at that. Hey, Gertrude, don't read that and I give them pep talk. So if you want to order a cameo video, there's an easy app. You can just Google it and find the app. I've been doing a lot of those. Stevie's getting me booked on different podcasts. I think this is my third or fourth. And yeah, Stevie's working on signing shows. I think Stevie's got about two or three signing shows set up for me. We've got them lined up. So hopefully, I, we don't have the dates right now, but yeah, hopefully soon. Mr. Beeson, thank you so much for your time. This has been such an honor talking with you. My pleasure. It's mutual. It's been great talking to you too, Mike. Thank you so much.